Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone. Here we are, October 14th, 2021. And the... uh, topic of today's show, yes, the topic is little tiny clues can lead to big results. And my uh, co-host, Bill Padalo, will be weighing in on that very topic after I give an introduction about what listeners should expect today. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. All right, so... I think what listeners should be prepared to uh, clue into today and, you know, cue cue on is that discovery is the way that our side is able to get back the leverage that the other side always has. So, I mean, there is a fundamental power imbalance in these cases, whether you're in a judicial foreclosure state like Florida or New York or Massachusetts or a non-judicial foreclosure state like California or Arizona, and frankly, the entire Ninth Circuit states really other than Hawaii. So regardless of where you are, you know, nationally across the fruited plain, you're going to be running up against the same institutional bias and the same uh, institutional framework, which by design making you the uh, homeowner, even if we're talking about rental properties, the principle remains the same. Uh, You have to prove out each and every element of everything you do. You have to do everything you do, not perfectly because we're all human and therefore air, so we rarely do anything perfectly. Uh, Nevertheless, our side is held to a much higher standard. Our side does have to show up, whether it's court, whether it's the initial filing complaint uh, proceedings, whether we're filing a response in a judicial foreclosure state or, a, you know, an initial complaint in a non-judicial foreclosure state, the burden realistically always rests the so-called borrower. And, you know, following Neil's analysis, we know that borrower is just sort of a useful term. I mean, in reality, the term borrower in these kinds of foreclosure contexts is not even it's not even well taken and it's it's fairly misconceived 
On the other hand, we need language and words that we can use to describe reality, and there is a background reality to these cases. And there is, you know, a centuries-long practice of uh, some parties, usually institutional in their societies, extending money to some people, and they would be called borrowers, to be able to purchase a home that otherwise they, they couldn't afford to do it with one payment. They need multiple payments. And in today's world, they may need 40 years of payments. I mean, uh, the 30-year loan is not been supplanted by the 40-year loan. You know, it's, it's an issue, though, and a lot of uh, refinancing is now done on the 40-year time frame just to make the payments, you know, nominally affordable. So this is the reality we are in now. Um, The discovery process is kind of tangential to main things that happen in a lawsuit typically. I mean, the discovery process can be used to advance your situation when you have a marginal situation in a legal case. Uh, If you were looking at this with a really wide lens, and that's how I look at all all litigation uh, since the foreclosure cases that bring people to this podcast, radio show, we still call it. These cases are one at the margin. And that's why we talk about little tiny clues can lead to big results. What does it mean to say a, a case is one of the margins? Uh, it's, it's, it's actually quite akin to what happens in the pro sports world. I mean, in the pro sports world, yes, there are blowouts where, you know, there are 40-point wins in the NBA or there are 40-point wins in the NFL sometimes. Uh, But on average, even major tournaments are won on the margins. Even major championships are sometimes won with the final game, whether it's being a one-off event like the NFL or whether it's being being a seven-game event like Major League Baseball or, 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 uh, or hockey. Or basketball. I mean, these these events all have a certain common kind of unifying theme, and it's not incidental. It's fundamental, as I sometimes say uh, on this program and otherwise. What does it mean to say that something's fundamental? Uh, it means when major sports championships are won by two or three points this or that way, That applies in the real world. That applies in the legal world. As in law, so in life. As in life, so in law. I also have said said that repeatedly on this show, and I will say it, and I do say it again now, because it's a very salient point to bring up right now. It's simply a fact of law and of life that very small things at times might appear to be even, you know, smaller than they are, can become very big because of the way legal procedure works and because of the way courts will decide ultimately what's in front of them. 
And if you're able to put from your side things in front of that court that are game changers, then you can change the game. You can change the game in front of you. You can go from being 20 points behind in a football or basketball game to being two or three points up, or maybe you're only two or three points behind. You could still close the gap. And this is the kind of thing that can happen when little tiny clues can lead to big results. So that's my intro on this. And I think Bill has very detailed, you know, compelling analysis on how this can play out in specific cases. So uh, if you could weigh in now, Bill, that would be appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. I like the analogy of uh, uh, sports because uh, in most sports, you have referees or umpires as well. That could be uh, technically the judge, right? And they have a big impact uh, ultimately on the outcomes as well based on technicalities or they throw a flag if there's a minor violation or sometimes these cases are uh, decided on just mere legal technicalities um, in procedural process. But anyhow, um, yeah, the topic tonight of the little things that can make a big difference. Um, I think the big takeaway here is, um, and it's, I'm going to go through a number of examples um, of cases recently uh, that I've worked on and investigated. And, and, you know, having done this now for 10 years, um, things have, have evolved way beyond the early days of uh, just looking at securitization fail issues, the basic chain of title issues. Um, the schemes are um, very, way more prevalent almost today than they have been in the past in terms of uh, sloppiness and document fabrication and creation because in all of these situations uh, of these foreclosures the so-called servicers are coming in claiming that uh, uh, you know they're the primary witness of the business record so on and so forth but pretty much all the documents if you take a close look and you really get down and dig into them there are so many little things and clues that can be picked out. Most people and even attorneys, um, they never could imagine or never their, their minds couldn't wrap around the fact that these parties and players would be willing to go to such great lengths um, to commit these uh, fraud schemes. And even judges, um, when you pulled this stuff out and showed it to them, um, the vast majority of time, unless you had a trained eye to look at this stuff or to dig into it, everything looks kosher on the surface. Everything looks legitimate on the surface. And it's just amazing what you'll find. So I'm going to give a couple of examples. <clears throat> so going into discovery, one of the primary methods, uh, and I call it an MO method of operation, that the parties will uh, engage in when it comes to discovery is they'll do a document dump. If you If you uh, push them hard enough on discovery, um, they're, they'll dump thousands of pages of documents um, on on our side or you know our, our um, the side who's seeking it, usually our side, and they do that to try to um, not only tie up a lot of time and effort and resources to have to go through that stuff, but it's also 
very boring and tedious to go through thousands of pages of documents, which they intentionally seem to want to like throw it in a blender and mix them up where they don't go in any kind of sequential order. And it's sort of like uh, you, you begin to fall asleep or your eyes start to droop after you're going through page 500 of, of 3,500 pages, right? And they do that intentionally. And, um, and what you will find or what I find um, in digging through this is that I have to go through each and every one painstakingly and look at it because ultimately – there are uh, needles in that haystack uh, that are going to um, that most people would would miss, and I, I probably missed a lot as well. I'm not saying I'd catch everything, but uh, in my first example on my little list, I'm going to walk through is a new, numerous set of documents came back from the servicer that had all of the logs um, and communications. Um, with the law firms and the client and so on and so forth in the servicing system. And, and most of these documents were very heavily redacted. And, of course, they never provide, you know, redaction logs or explanations for, you know, what's redacted or why it's redacted as they should. But anyhow, um, I happened to come across a, a redaction where they made a mistake and they forgot to redact two letters um, out of the whole sequence. And my experience in looking at these screenshots is uh, the two letters that they left out. Um, to me, and I, and I have to be careful about going into real direct details on these cases, but um, it told me that the uh, parties just before filing the lawsuit had endorsed the note to blank, which would have been technically a fabrication forgery because the entity whose endorsement that would be had long uh, ceased to exist. So we know that that goes on steadily, but uh, this was a situation where they, they, they screwed up on that redaction. So I pointed that out to counsel and said, hey, you need to go after this in discovery and compel this document because I'm certain that what I'm going to see is, uh, is going to show that they fabricated. Well, lo and behold, good lawyering, good uh, pressure and motions to compel prevailed. The court said, no, they, you need to return, turn over this uh, – these documents in unredacted form. And uh, lo and behold, the response came back, and it was kind of laughable, really, in my eyes. Uh, the servicer said, well, we got all these documents redacted from the prior servicer, and the prior servicer is no longer in business, um, so we don't know what's under there. Okay, Now, that they're, they're going to have all kinds of problems with that response for a number of reasons, but... Uh, but number one, had they come back with the unredacted, which they couldn't because it would have exposed them for the fabrication, it would have been case over. Um, but now uh, we're in a good, my client's in a very good position, I think, um, moving forward here uh, because now they have the servicer admit, making this admission that everything they got from the prior servicer came redacted. So um, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for them to, to meet their burden. Um, but other things that these uh, entities you would never think to look for, and, and, and what I'm starting to, to see is uh, lots and lots of tricks. Um, well, let me take one step back. Uh, one of the reasons why 
you know, people will ask, well, why should I hire you, uh, Bill, to do this work? Or if I do hire you, what, what will you find? And that's sort of a, uh, a question that uh, I always kind of laugh a little bit because, you know, I, no two cases are identical. They're, they're all different. It's sort of like a box of chocolates. And even though uh, these cases have a lot of similar fact patterns, um, they're, they're, they're all different in many different ways. But one of the benefits in coming to somebody like me is having done this for so long is that I have a very extensive database um, of litigation over the years of, of testimony and depositions against a lot of uh, individuals in the field. And where that comes in handy is um, uh, when I'm looking at testimony in one case in one jurisdiction in California or Florida or wherever it might be, I can often point out um, where they took in an opposite position somewhere else. And so issues of uh, judicial estoppel come into play or finding things to use as impeachment testimony. So that'll bring me into the next scenario or uh, example. Um, so I've got a case where the service or witness is testifying on the stand and they brought a document uh, with them. Um, of course, it wasn't produced timely, but uh, in looking at it at the day of trial, there was a, an investor code that was uh, very small and it was on the document. And I told counsel, I said, well, uh, you're going to have to cross-examine and really go after that investor code because I know in their, from another case that they've testified that that investor code belongs to a specific entity and it's not the plaintiff. And if you really uh, hit that witness on that, I'm pretty sure he's going to falsely state that that belongs to the current plaintiff in the case. Well, lo and behold, that's what happened. Uh, when the witness got pressured on the, on the stand, they uh, said that investor code belonged to the current plaintiff, and uh, now we had uh, great rebuttal uh, evidence to show uh, that, that that's clearly false. Um, so some of this uh, information is really useful when, when comparing and using it from case to case. Now, going on a little bit about some of these tricks and schemes, um, what I've found uh, recently um, in a case, and I'm starting to, now that I actually observed it, I'm now starting to see it. I'm looking for it in every case, but I'm seeing it more and more. But I was in the California Secretary of State uh, website looking at some filings for some corporations in the chain of title. And I came upon um, one of the original filings in the history of the, of the company where uh, in most states when you file, like in California, as a foreign corporation. So in this particular case, it was a Delaware corporation uh, filing in California. At the time you register, you have to produce the certificate of standing from your home state. And that certificate, you know, coming from Delaware or wherever your home state for that foreign corporation is, that certificate is typically has an embossed seal on it from the Secretary of State uh, from wherever it's coming from. And there's very specific um, identifiers and codes that are used um, if one were to try to verify that certificate. Well, back in the, as far back in the 80s, 90s, and then heading into the early 2000s, some of these corporations um, were using very similar names um, 
that were very confusing. They were they were using names to sound like they were major uh, national firms that people would recognize. And then when I went in and started looking at this one particular filing, it it had no embossed seal from uh, the Delaware Secretary of State, and it was missing the code identifiers. Lo and behold, I went and verified with uh, Delaware that that was a fake uh, corporate filing. Uh, And so that leads to a huge domino effect, okay, because then you start getting into – this this false filing that they really weren't a Delaware corporation as they said they were, and then it got into a chain reaction of uh, the license applications for lending and servicing in California that all started to uh, show uh, that it was all based and predicated on this false filing of an entity that didn't exist, and th- and then um, it even gets into situations where um, and I'll jump into the next scenario because it's a California case. But I had a case where the lender on the deed of trust I was tracking down, and it's no longer in existence. And and I had some um, documents from the original closing that had the loan officer's name on there. I looked into the national registration system, and lo and behold, uh, the loan officer is still in the business. And uh, so I, I reached out to him and had a nice conversation with him. He was very cooperative, and basically he was—he uh, admitted, oh, that name was a, a DBA for another entity, and that entity um, named on the deed of trust. He, he basically admitted we weren't a lender; we were just—we were just broker, uh, brokering the loans, and that was just a DBA. So that's going to be a big problem uh, because uh, DBAs. Uh, fictitious business names, especially in California, they need to register those DBAs in the counties, uh, especially where they have so-called branch offices or where they're doing business. And it can lead to all kinds of uh, other things unraveling in in the chain of title with the entities and so on and so forth. So uh, the list of, of where this, of all these types of things that are going on, I mean, I, I could probably go on for an hour just on the list of examples that I have, but I, I guess where I'm going is is where is this type of work that I do and where how is it evolving and where is it going? What I can tell you, and I had a conversation with Neil um, not too long ago about this, um, because there can be so much relevant uh, information um, in tracking down or can, that can be found in tracking down the names and the addresses and the entities and really attacking their um, their actual existence and their knowledge of of um, the documents that are being signed there's a lot of value there and I think what we're where I'm going and where I want to go is that um, we're going to set up a network of contractors, so to speak, of people that want to maybe get into the investigative line of work. And we're going to target very specific areas where most of these documents are that we see where they're coming from, like Delaware, uh, Utah, Florida, Texas, California. And where this is going is we're, um, we're going to have people going out and tracking these people down and actually confirming and verifying 
who they are, the addresses, taking photos. Like I've said, I've had cases where they use address on assignments that come to uh, vacant lots, for you know, for example. Um, but it's going to be a very useful uh, way to approach these investigations of that if we can expand and, and network out and get people on the ground. Uh, and I'll give one last example here. Um, we had an investigator uh, help a client of mine down in Florida who went to nationwide title clearing and uh, tracked the, the two individuals that, who signed as officers of different companies on the assignment, got the photos of them going into nationwide title clearing, got the address where they resided, got all the information basically to show that they were um, not who they claimed to be on the uh, on, on the assignments uh, that they that they executed. So um, this is kind of where I see it, it, it evolving um, and exposing all the different levels of the fraudulent documents. And if you were just looking at this stuff, it looks legit on the surface. But I'll tell you what, there is so much going on beneath the surface that you really, really need a, a, a trained eye to um, to evaluate all this. Charles? <coughs> Uh, Bill, I mean, that's excellent analysis. Uh, I think the biggest takeaway for listeners is that the particular facts, the particular details, the discoverable details by yet one more, you know, deep dive procedure are how these cases are won, are how these cases are able to proceed to it does take a huge amount of intentionality from our side to get these cases to get more traction, whether you're, again, in a judicial foreclosure state or a non-judicial foreclosure state. So, I mean, the breakdown you, you gave, particularly, uh, you know, the last portion related to the coordination right now that you're doing, you know, which is, is basically going to put our side in a position to up our game. I mean, that, that always needs to be done because the other side has so many resources. And, you know, not to sound uh, prophetic, uh, nevertheless, uh, I mean, our side can win and will win because we have the truth. And getting that truth out is not a simple thing. Unfortunately, it's a very time-consuming, resource-consuming, patience-consuming endeavor. It can be done. It is being done. And I think, Bill, you just gave uh, a representation for how this is happening in real time right now. Uh, so with the remaining time we have here, I do want to do a, a brief COVID update. I think, uh, you know, it's kind of a stasis, but I think it's also another calm before the storm. I mean, you know, the COVID regulations, such as they are in courts around the country, depending on how protective your state is of individual rights or judicial rights, I mean, all that's still up in the air. And I think things are going to be very much in flux in the coming months. It's also the case that even in very 
kind of, um, again, I'm using this term broadly and loosely, borrower-protective states like California, you know, the moratoriums have gone away. There really hasn't been a meaningful extension. I mean, there's a there's a patch that's been put on whereby, for instance, on the eviction front, renters can access public money to defend their position. I mean, I'm not going to say good luck with doing that if you're if you're a post foreclosure, you know, perspective evictee. Though I think there are going to be a lot of barriers there, so that's an issue right there on the foreclosure front in California. There's not a tsunami yet; it's building. A lot of foreclosures are happening right now, and they've been held till the end of September. They're literally in play. So that's where everything is at here on this October 14, 2021. Uh, thank you, Bill. And Neil will be back next week. Thanks, Charles. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.